All right, everybody, welcome. How are we doing? Fantastic. To those that are online, we're glad you waited for us. Uh, we've had an incredible time of testimony and communion and worship, and we're, uh, we're just glad now to get a chance to turn towards the Word of God. And we've been in this series that I'm going to finish today, and it's a series where we've been talking about the sovereign will of God and man's essentially partially free choice. And we've spent three weeks looking at the difference between God's sovereign will and man's free will. And we've learned that God is just, that God is loving, that God is righteous, but he never promised to be fair after the sin in the garden. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at God's sovereignty as it relates to our salvation. Specifically, the question we've been looking at is, did God choose us or did we choose him? Now, the problem with our approach to this question is that we've essentially made them opposites and they're not. The contradictory statement to God chose us is God didn't choose us. The contradictory statement to we chose them is we didn't choose God. God chose us and we chose God is not a contradictory statement. It's not a contradiction to say that it's possible that God could choose us and we could choose him. These two statements are true in scripture. We have to come to that conclusion. There's too many scriptures, I showed them to you, that clearly say God chose us. And then there's too many scriptures that say we chose him. So it's not an either or, it's a both. How they relate to each other is a mystery at some level, but it's not a contradiction. We know both are true. We just don't know exactly how they relate. But our difficulty understanding this concept doesn't make it an either or. The problem in the church is people are saying, well, it's either this or it's that. No, it's not. It's both. And I'm going to talk to you about that today. The second reason we struggle with this kind of idea is that we kind of put God in a human box. We, we think he's some kind of superhuman, that he's like us, he thinks like us. He lives in time the way we live in time. That we limit God. And so we think, okay, well, if I live in time, then God must live in time. But yeah, God tells us I'm eternal. I'm not limited by time. I can see you 10,000 years from now. I could see you before you were born. He's not limited by that. We don't know the outcome of our decisions, but he does. 1,000 years from now, is as real to God right now as today is to us. He's not limited by this. He's eternal. He sees the past, the present, and the future. He knows the outcome of every free will decision you're going to make. And thus, he knows who's saved and who's not. Why? Because he can see them clothed in Christ's righteousness right now. When God thinks of you, when he sees you, one of the ways he sees you is at the throne in heaven worshiping as a righteous saint. Think about this. If you were able to go, let's say your kids are five years old, and you were able to go into the future somehow and see them as adults, you could never come back, see them as five-year-olds and see them the same again. You'd know what happened to them. You'd know how their life turned out. You would know too much. You knowing it doesn't change the fact that they're living their lives making decisions, but you know where they ended up. God's predestination 
and human free will are a mystery and how they actually relate, but they're not a contradiction. Both are true. We don't fully understand how both are true, but the scriptures tell us we are both chosen and free. Sometimes finding the balance in the middle is best accomplished by looking at the two extremes. There are two extremes in the church today that I truly believe are heretical at the very extreme on both sides. Let me give you an example to try to make this clearer. First, I'm gonna look at the Calvinist view. Suppose a man sees three people drowning in a lake, okay? And there's clearly a sign that says swimming in the lake is forbidden. They shouldn't be there, okay? A Calvinist would say, well, he could choose to let them drown and it would be just. They disobeyed the sign. They deserved the punishment. They did it themselves. Swimming is forbidden. They went swimming. This is what happens. And a Calvinist would argue that if he chooses to let them all drown, he's being just. That's their punishment. They're bringing the deserved consequences on themselves. They made a free will decision to put themselves at risk. From the standpoint of justice, this man's not obligated to do anything. But we perceive it'd be hard to see that person as loving, right? I mean, you might be just, and maybe they did deserve to be in the water drowning, but it's hard to say that's somebody who's loving because they're standing by when they could do something and watching somebody drown. But suppose he said, well, you know, even though the guys are drowning because of their own disobedience, nonetheless, out of the goodness of my heart and my love for people and for them, I'm gonna save one of them and I'm gonna let the other two drown. I could save all three, but I'm choosing, I'm just gonna save one. This is the exact scenario of the Calvinist. All deserve to drown, but God chose in his sovereignty for some reason to select a few and save them. Since all have been punished from birth for their sin, it is fair and just that he lets them die. But through his grace, he decides to bless and save his elect, the ones he chooses. People he choose to save from drowning because he's sovereign and he's God and he can do whatever he wants. They're destined to hell and he's showing grace and mercy by saving some. The problem is, God is just only if those men had the free will to obey the sign or not, right? I mean, if the men were in the lake and they disobeyed the sign, somebody might argue, well, it's just, you get what you did. They should have gone in there. But if they had no opportunity to know about or obey the sign, is God just in letting them drown? You see, justice in this case requires that they made a decision. They had the free will to swim or not, they chose to swim. If they ignored the warning sign and now they're drowning, they brought it on themselves. But what if they didn't get in the water by their own choice? What if they were on a boat, let's say, and they weren't swimming, they were boating. And let's say that a man named Adam was driving a boat and ran into him. And they ended up in the water, not because of what they'd done, but because of what Adam did. And they had no choice in the matter. Would they still deserve to drown? 
Would an all-knowing God who knows what happened on the boat be just in letting them drown if they didn't make the decision to not swim or swim? Would he be just in saving one of three? Calvinists argue that God can choose some because they all deserve death, but if they never had free will, as a Calvinist would argue, how can you hold them accountable for a decision they never had the free will to make? If God didn't choose them, or if if God decided not to choose that person for salvation, they had nothing to do with it. God simply chose that. Can God, in his justice and love, punish someone for a decision they never made and punish them for all of eternity? Hmm. You see, the problem with the extreme Calvinist view is that without the free will to reject God, God's not not just in sentencing people to death and eternity and hell. You see, the reason that we are destined for hell is because in our flesh nature, we choose to sin and reject against God. As a result of that decision, we are destined for an eternity of hell. None of us have the ability to obey all the laws. It's not possible. But if you take away our free will, then we were created, and God decided before we were created to either let us be saved or not saved. So the question is, if I was created to be against God and I'm actually doing what God created me to do, how could he punish me in all of eternity and be just and loving? That's the decision. In this example, the man is just in letting them drown only if they ignored the sign and went swimming. Now we can look at all kinds of situations here. Suppose they were mentally challenged and they didn't understand what the sign meant. What if the sign was written in a language they didn't know? What if they were blind and never actually saw the sign? In order for a decision to be just, it has to come from one who has all the information. Jesus says, all authority has been given, heaven and earth, to me. He's the only one who knows everything. He's the only one who can determine what a just sentence is for each of us. He says he's all-knowing and just. He says his decisions are always correct, always just, and always righteous. That's who he is. So if this man truly had all the information and these people did deserve to drown, and knowing that, he could save all three, but he's tired, he's only going to save one. He's just, and he's exhibiting grace. He's sovereign in his decision, but what about his love? If you have the ability to save all three and for some reason you choose one, you can say you're just, you can say you're righteous, you can say they deserve it, but when people look at you, you're going to have a hard time saying that you're love. Now, we would surely consider his love to be partial and imperfect. If this man had the power to save all three and he chose not to, he can't claim to have perfect love for everybody. He can't violate his nature and remain both just and loving. But that's not the God revealed in the Bible. God doesn't claim to have love. He doesn't claim to just be loving. He says he is love. It's the essence of who he is. He can't not be love. In every circumstance, under every condition, and no matter what happens, God is love. 
John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's who God is. In every circumstance, under every minute of every being of all of eternity, God is love. He can't not be love. How broad is that love? Calvinists would say, well, it extends to those he chose. God's word says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Is God's love exclusive to only some? And if God's essence is love, how can he turn it off? How could he love some people and not other people? He's love. He can't contradict himself. You might ask, well, did he come for everybody? Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who are the ungodly? Every human ever born since Adam and Eve. How sure is the promise of God's love? Because we could say, well, God is loving, but, but at certain times he doesn't act loving. Well, Paul says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're all being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God himself says, I am love. When you experience me, you will experience love. We are one and the same. You will never encounter me and not experience my love. My love may be a rebuke. My love may be a correction. But you'll always experience my love. Does God give his love to a limited few? Does God just pour out his love on the elect? 1 Timothy 2.3. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He paid the price for everybody. He didn't come for a select few. Jesus didn't go to the cross for only those God had chosen. He says, I came for the whole world. I came so that you could have salvation. Paul tells us that God wants everybody to be saved. How? By God's sovereign choice? Yes. But also by coming to a knowledge of the truth and reacting to it. Paul tells us there's only one mediator between God and it's Jesus and he paid the price for everybody. 2 Peter 2.1 But false prophets arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The master bought them. That's the story that we're looking at. He paid for them. The master, he paid for them. The consequences of their free will decision. The problem with the extreme Calvinist view is multiple, and I'll just hit a few of them. 
First, grace is not coercion. And a forced act is not a free act. The Calvinists would argue that God chose you. He's going to save you whether you want it or not. You're saved. You can't do anything about it. You can't reject it. That's what God decided to do. He's sovereign. You're not. Deal with it. They believe that God chose his elect and didn't choose the other people. Those he chose can't resist. God does what he wants. You're either chosen or not, and it was decided before you were born. What you do on earth has nothing really to do with you. If you were destined for hell, you were born that way. And if you're destined for heaven, you're born that way. And really, you had nothing to do with it. God doesn't have to be fair. He's sovereign. That may sound good to some, but God made the claim also that he's loving and full of justice. The Calvinist extreme removes God's love. They argue that God chose who he chose. He loves the ones he wants to love. He uses everybody else for his purpose. See, God is love, but he can't choose not to love everyone. It violates who he is. The Calvinist takes away any responsibility that man has for rejecting God because you never had a decision. So in this view, God doesn't love everyone. Jesus didn't die for everyone. Jesus only paid for the sins of the elect, not for everybody. Which means, by the way, that Satan won. That Jesus didn't defeat Satan on the cross. He only defeated the sin of the saints on the cross. And Satan got exactly what he wanted. The majority of people under the bondage of sin, the way he wanted it to be, rejecting God. And if man didn't have free will, then why did God tempt Adam and Eve? And how did they make a decision? If they didn't have the free will to make a decision, where did sin come from? If Lucifer didn't have free will, how could he have rejected God? If God created Lucifer to reject him, then God creates evil and God can't create evil. Evil comes from free will. Without free will, you can't explain evil. And if there's no free will, why did Satan take Jesus into the wilderness to tempt him? Adam and Eve, from a Calvinist view, didn't have free will. They were created by God to sin, yet he gave them a command not to sin. Put them in the garden, said, don't do this. And then he punished all of us for all of eternity for a decision that, he, that Calvinists would say they weren't even responsible for making. How could a just God, a loving God, send people to hell when they're doing the very thing he created them to do? We're going to see from God's perspective that there are two groups of people. Those he knows to be saved, those he knows who aren't saved. Not because he created them that way, but because he already knows the outcome. And he can't ignore what he knows. But look at the opposite extreme, the Arminian. They would say that everything God does is a result of man's choice. If we took the pond view, there are three people drowning in the pond. All are guilty. All are righteously judged by God. They made a free will decision to reject God. God is standing on the shore and holding three life buoys. He can save all three, but an extreme Arminian would argue that God can only throw the life ring to those who tell him to do it. 
that God is powerless to save unless man tells him to. God wants to give everybody a buoy, but not everybody asks for one. He has plenty of them to give out, but he doesn't have the power to save you unless you tell him it's okay. And they would argue that God doesn't know who's going to ask. That some are going to request salvation, some aren't, but God doesn't know who is. He's responding to the human decision. He's limited by man's decision and can't act until it happens. To the extreme Arminian, man is in control. And man is sovereignly in control, and God has to respond to what we decide we want to do, particularly when it comes to our salvation. So on one end of the spectrum, you have man is in total control. On the other end of the spectrum, you have God is in total control. And if you look at scriptures, there are scriptures to say each, but they're both true, so the answer has to be in the middle. That's what we're going to talk about. God is not dependent on man, and he's not limited by time. Now, you must know that I think both of these extreme views are heretical, right? I mean, it's pretty obvious. I don't agree with either one of them. But they're gaining in the churches. Over here, it's called Arminianism, or it's called uh, New Theology, or it's called Humanism. And over here, it's Calvinism, it's Reformed Theology at the extreme. Both sides violate the nature and character of God. Not based on what I think, but what on God's scripture says. If you want to believe either of these extremes, you've got to do some pretty serious theological gymnastics to get there. God can't say, I am this, and then not be that. He can't claim to be something that he's not being. God is pure. He can't lie. He can't violate his essence. If he says he's love, he loves everybody. And usually at this point, those who get on either end of this view will begin to tell you something like this. Well, God's ways are higher than our ways. We don't understand. But while God's ways are higher than our ways, he never, ever asks us to believe a clear contradiction. Let me repeat that. In Scripture, when you're studying, you may not know exactly what's going on. But nowhere in Scripture does God ask you to believe a contradiction. We may be asked to believe something that makes no sense based on what we know about God. But if we can't challenge things that don't seem to make sense, things that are extreme, and all we're supposed to do is go, oh, well, God's ways are higher than our ways, so we don't understand, you don't understand this extreme or this extreme, then there is no false doctrine. There is no heresy because we can't challenge it. It doesn't mean there aren't mysteries, things about God that we don't fully understand. Trinity comes to mind. But mystery is something that's beyond our reason, not something that goes against reason. Nowhere in scriptures does God tell us to ignore our reason. These two, independently, one or the other, can't be true. Because scripture pushes for both. So we can't take away some high intellectual cop-out. God reveals himself in Scripture. Let me show you some examples. We look at Scripture and, and salvation and we go, well, did God choose us or did we choose God? And we think that that question is limited to our salvation question. 
But actually, all throughout Scripture, we see this interplay between God knowing what's going to happen and man making free will decisions. Let me show you some examples. Joseph and his brothers. Remember Joseph? He was sold into Egypt as a slave. Free will decision of his brothers to take him into slavery and sell him. Genesis 50, 18. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear... For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. He's saying, look, you made a decision that you thought was evil against me. And yet God tells us in the same package, the same passage, that God is the one orchestrating this. Yes, the brothers made a free will decision, but look at this. Joseph said, come near to me. And they came near and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land two years and there are five years which there'll be neither plowing or harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of the house and ruler over all of Egypt. What he's saying is, look, you made the free will to send me into slavery, but God was orchestrating his greater plan. God is sovereign and you made a free will choice. Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about many people should be kept alive. What what he's saying is, look, there's free will decisions. You sold me into slavery. You're responsible for that. But God used that to fulfill his overall plan. You see, God is sovereign. It's not God's sovereignty or man's choice. It's both at the same time, right in the middle. Think about Paul on the shipwreck. Here's what Paul says. I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted all of those who sail with you. He's saying, look, God is sovereign. He has decided I'm going to Rome. Y'all can relax. None of us are going to drown. Unless you disobey what God tells you to do. Acts 27, 30. And the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying anchors. And Paul said to the centurion, unless these men stay in the ship, You can't be saved. God's sovereign will, man's free choice. Same passage, same moment, together in the middle. How does God know that none will drown? Because he's looking ahead and he knows they're all going to choose to stay on the ship. Does that mean they didn't have free will to decide? No, it means God knows the outcome. We'll get to that. God knew in advance and revealed to Paul that none would drown. But he also knew it would be accomplished through his free choice. Those that had faith in God to obey him were saved. Sailors made a free will decision. It's not God's sovereignty or man's choice. It's both right in the middle, right where it belongs, the center of the pendulum. Let's go a little deeper. Look at the cross. Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus went to the cross in accordance with the plan and foreknowledge of sovereign God. It's going to happen. 
Clearly, God's sovereign will was for Jesus to go to the cross. And even though his death was set and determined by all of eternity, Jesus went of his own free choice. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it back up again. This charge I've received from my Father. I have total free will in this situation, Jesus says. And yet, the Scriptures tell us that God had already ordained that Jesus was going to the cross. Hmm, we'll get to that. It's not either or. It's both, right in the middle. Think about those who crucified Jesus. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed in the hands of lawless men. In the same verse, it says God had a plan. This Jesus, according to God's foreknowledge, went to the cross. How did it happen? Through your free will. You see, you crucified and killed him. It's not either or. It's both, right in the middle, right where it belongs. Think about the betrayal of Judas. God determined that the betrayal must happen, and it occurred as a result of a free and responsible decision that Judas made. Matthew 26, 24, the Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better if he'd never been born. Judas asked him, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. Is it me? You made the decision. Your free will. Son of man goes as is written of him. God's sovereign will is that he's going to the cross. Judas had the free will to be the one that sent him there or not. You've decided this to be so, Judas. It's your free will. Does that mean Judas had no choice? No, it means God knew the outcome of the choice. But from Judas' standpoint, he's making a decision. He made his decision within the boundaries of God's free will and man's choice. It's not either or, it's again, both, right in the middle. Think about the stumbling block that Peter quotes when he's talking about Isaiah. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes, choice, in him will be put... Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They disobey the word as they were destined to do. Does that mean they didn't have free will? No, it says they disobeyed, they chose but they were destined to do so. What does that mean? God's going to use their free will decision in his greater plan for what happens. Not one or the other, both right in the middle. Think about the conspiracy against Jesus. Acts 4.26, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed for truly in this city there were those who gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had destined to take place. 
God's saying, look, God has a destination, a place for Jesus. Yet these people conspired against him of their own free will. Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jewish leaders all conspired through their free will to do what God had decided beforehand needed to happen. Both true, not either or, both true at the same moment. Think about the Jewish rejection of Christ, Acts 13. Paul says, Barnabas spoke loudly. It was necessary that the word of God first be spoken to you. Talking to the Jewish people. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying as many were appointed to eternal life believed. The Jews chose to reject God. The Gentiles chose to accept him. Just as God has known. He knew the outcome, not one or the other, right in the middle, just like the others. Think about the betrayal. Jesus says this, for the son of man goes and it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he's betrayed. Think about what he's saying here. I'm going to go do what the father has determined I'm going to do, but woe to the man who betrays me. Woe to the person who in their free will made a decision against me that God is going to use for his purposes to move me to the cross. They're responsible for that decision, not because they were created to do it, because they made the free will choice to do it. Not either or. Again, it's both at the same time, right in the middle. We've seen many examples of Scripture. This interaction between divine choice and free will. In fact, once you start looking for it, it's everywhere. But the answer's got to be in the middle. I mean, if throughout the scriptures we see this interplay between God knowing what's going to happen, destined it to happen, pre-choosing that it's going to happen, and man making these free will decisions, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around it. It's a mystery. It's not a contradiction. The relationship between God's choice and man's choice is not either, it's both. And here's why we have a problem with this. We constantly try to put God on a timeline. Well, he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. God isn't restricted to our time. When he looks, he sees events as they've already unfolded. He can't go back and unlook, and he can't not be what he knows. He knows the future. When you read about what God is doing, you have to look at how God views the world and see his statements through his view. When you look at what man's doing, you've got to remember you're looking from man's perspective trying to understand what God is doing. Okay, I'll make that clear to you in a minute. It's not this or that, it's two different perspectives. God knows for all of eternity everything's going to happen. He says that. I know everything. I know every free will act and I know how it all turns out. So what he foreknows is not based on what he chooses to make happen. It's what he knows is eventually going to happen. They're simultaneous, eternal, coordinated acts of sovereign God and man's free will. Our moral acts are totally free for us to decide. God is totally sovereign in determining 
the consequence of those decisions, but from his perspective, he already knows the outcome. Let me look at an example that may help you. Actually, I'm going to skip over this particular one. Um, just to give a clue to the slide, guys. Sorry. Give me one second. I've just decided this is going to repeat what we've already said, so I want to make sure we get to this other point. The problem with our Western logic is that we see this and most things as either or rather than both. It's just the way we think about the world. Divine sovereignty and human free will are not logically opposite. The statement, John's salvation was predestined by God, and the statement, John's salvation was chosen by himself with God's help, are both true at the same time. Our salvation depends upon the way we look at it, the standpoint and the viewpoint of God. He's not limited by time. He knows what's going to happen, therefore, it is going to happen. Therefore, in his view, it's already happened. But from the standpoint of humans who don't know the future, we don't know that. Think about a football game. Okay, suppose that you recorded a football game and you watched it today. And you watched every play. You watched every moment. You're a football fanatic. You know everything that happened. Every moment. Those players played a game. They played a great game. No matter how many times you replay it, the final score is the same. The outcome is the same. Every play, every decision is the same. It'll be the same every time you watch it, and it will never not be the same. Once you've seen the game for the first time, you can never go back and watch it as if you don't know what happens in that game. That's why people tell you all the time, don't tell me what happened, I'm going to watch it later. Can't look at it again the same way. Yet during the game, every decision was made by the players and the coaches and the referees. The fact that you're going to know at some point what happened doesn't change the way they're playing the game. You just happen to know the outcome. They made their own decision at the time. They have their own consequences. If they didn't make the tackle, somebody scored a touchdown. Not because it was destined to be, but because in their free will, they didn't make the tackle. The game is both determined and free at the same time. God's not limited by time or space. So every human event, when we see God, we have to remember we're supposed to look at the world from God's perspective, not ours. The mistake we make in this is we can't understand God's perspective. Humans' events are not just as good as done to God, they are done. Since God has infallible foreknowledge of the future, in a sense, everything he's looking at in your life and my life is a rerun. It's already happened. Okay? He knows the outcome. He knows who you're going to be 10 years from now, 1,000 years from now, 50 million years from now. He can see you there right now. He's not limited by time. doesn't mean that our actions aren't free. It just means we worship a God who knows the outcome. It's the perspective that's the problem.
When you read that God did something or knows something, you have to interpret it in the view of God. When you read that man does something or knows something, you have to remember you're looking at it from man. So I will make a free will choice to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. It's a single event, but it's viewed from very different perspectives. From the human perspective, I've chosen God. He has revealed himself to me. The Holy Spirit has drawn me in. I had a choice to follow him or not. From my perspective, I chose God because I remember a moment in my life when it clicked. And I remember the moment when I felt I surrendered. And I remember that moment when I had to get on my knees and say, God, okay, I get it. To me, that's a choice. It's a human choice. I made the choice to accept Christ. But from God's perspective, when he looks at that choice I made, it's already done. He knew it would happen, therefore it must happen. He can see that it's already happened, although I didn't know yet. Every time he looked at me, he saw me as saved. He knows my name is written in the book because he knows what's going to happen. He knows the outcome. That doesn't change my free will. It just means he knows what's going to happen. You see, because when God thinks of me, he doesn't think of me here on this stage talking to you guys. He can't look at me that way anymore. The fallen human trying to explain God's word, that's not who he sees. From God's perspective, he sees me at the throne worshiping God for all of eternity, reborn in the righteousness of Christ. That's who I am. He can never look at me again in the same way. He would say, I didn't make you do it. I didn't force you to do it. You made a free will choice. I just happen to know you did it. I literally can see you there right now. You're going to experience it, but it's already done. So let's look at two verses and focus on this perspective. In Acts, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was planned in the foreknowledge of God. He sent Jesus here to pay for our sins. Jesus was going to the cross. He's already been. Jesus was delivered up according to the foreknowledge of God. The perspective here is God's perspective, not ours. What does God know and see? What does he see from his perspective? Well, God on his throne in heaven looks over to his right hand and sees glorified, risen Jesus Christ, who has all authority in heaven and earth, sitting at his right hand. It's done. He's already done it. It's complete. He is the risen, worthy Lamb of God in his eternal presence. His crucifixion's done, whether it's happened yet or not. God destined it to be so, and it became so. In other words, when you think about when it says God knew this, God had foreknowledge of this, God could see this, yes, he sees all of eternity. But he's looking differently than man looks. 
It's determined that God foresaw it. It's also determined that Jesus freely chose it. It's not a logical contradiction. It's two perspectives of the same event. They're not mutually exclusive. Suppose the Cowboy game was on Thursday and I was working and watched it on a replay and Tammy told me the outcome. I can't watch that game and not think that the Cowboys are a bunch of losers. I trust Tammy to say that's what happened. It happened. Cowboys are losers. Every time I watch it, they're losers. I can't change it. If you turned on the TV and you were watching it for the first time and you say, who are those guys? I'd say they're losers because I know they're going to lose, right? And you would go, well, how do you know that? Well, I know the outcome, but they're not losers yet. Oh, trust me, they're losers. God looks at every event of your life and it's already done. It's complete. It's great freedom when you think about it. He doesn't see you as the miserable human sinner that you are. He sees you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ in heaven right now. When God sees you, He sees who you're going to become, not just who you are right now. So three men are drowning in a lake. The balanced view, yeah, they disobeyed the sign. They ignored the warning. They deserved to drown because of their free will choice to ignore the law. God would be just because all deserved to drown and they made a free will choice. But God is loving. In fact, God is love. You can't help but love everybody. He reveals himself as one who's not only love, but perfect love and perfect love for everybody that nothing can separate us from. So the balanced view is that if you wanted to look at the balanced view of this, yes, people are drowning. Yes, they're drowning of their own accord. Yes, they shouldn't be there. Yes, they are going to die if somebody doesn't do something. But the balanced biblical view is that a helicopter comes over the lake and bombards the lakes with life rafts, scuba equipment, snorkels, platforms, floating devices, floaties, floating sticks, everything possible, rescue boats, helicopters, whatever you want, he will save you. But you have to decide to reach out and grab it. That's the biblical view. He knows in advance when he looks out at the lake who's going to choose him and who's not because he knows where they're going to be. But he didn't make them choose. He didn't tell them they couldn't choose. He says, in my justice, you deserve to drown, but in my love, I'm going to flood you with opportunities to come to me. In fact, he says in his word, no one has an excuse because he's everywhere. God knows and sees those who will survive. He's not limited by time. He can look out and say, yep, those are saved. That one's not saved, not, not saved. Not because he demanded it, not because he made them robots who had to choose or not choose, but because he gave them the free will to accept him or reject him. And in his love, he pours out salvation on every person that's drowning. Knowing the outcome does not impact the choice. Those people have to make a decision to let Jesus save them. That's the scriptures. God's predestination and human free choice are a mystery, but they're not a contradiction. They go beyond reason, but they're not against reason. 
We apprehend that each is true, even if we can't fully comprehend how each are true. There's no contradiction in God knowingly predetermining and predeterminedly knowing from all of eternity exactly what we would do with our free will acts. God determined that moral creatures would do things freely. It's the only way he knows we love them. If you take away our free will, God doesn't know we love him. By choosing him when we could choose everything else, that's when you know. How do I know Tammy loves me? She chose me instead of everybody else. I just know. If she was created robotically to choose me, if she had no choice from before she was born to put up with me, that's not love. That's forced torture. In some way, she's responsible for having to deal with me because she chose me. It's not my fault. It's hers. She made the decision. She ignored all the warning signs. God is righteous and loving. He's not some God that created a bunch of robots who love or don't love, who were destined to hell or not. He says throughout his word, you're chosen. I know you're chosen because you chose me. I know the outcome. I'm sovereign God. I can't not know what I know. But I'm giving every person a chance to respond. So yes, I have sovereign will to save those who are willing to be saved. You didn't make me do it. You chose to do it. I want everybody to be saved. At the same time, I know the outcome. I know who the saved are. I know who the not saved are. I know that there are people in this world that will never choose me. Why? Because I see them right now and they're burning in hell. And it tears my heart up. And I see others right now and they're righteous worshiping me in heaven. I know they're saved. God is just He's righteous, and he's loving. So we have free will. God has sovereign will, exactly the way he decided it should be. Let's pray. God, I thank you that throughout Scripture, you reveal to us the truth. We don't fully understand how your sovereign will and our free will tie together. But we know your word's true. And we know that when we see a something that is challenging to us, we're to dive deeper, not run from it. So God, we'll probably never understand on this planet exactly how these two things interrelate. But you didn't ask us to. You didn't ask us to believe the extreme view on either side. You asked us to believe the scriptures. And the scriptures tell us that in some incredible, amazing way, even though you know the future, even though nothing gets by you, and even though... You already know who the elect are because we've elected to be there or not in our free will. We still live here with a choice to love you. We have a message to take to people who need to make a decision. So God, help us not to get too lost at either end of this pendulum. Help us to trust you that you're true and you're good and you love people and you wouldn't let somebody drown and you certainly wouldn't punish somebody who doesn't make a decision to go against you. It would be unjust. So God, help us to remember who you are. Help us to not rewrite the scriptures. Help us to focus on you and your love for us. Help us, God, as believers who disagree on this topic to lean more towards the middle, to perhaps understand that you often meet us in the middle of these things. God, we love you. We trust you. We thank you. Uh, We thank you that your word's not easy. We thank you that it's not simple, that you do want us to to dive and to 
understand and to ask questions because that's where you meet us in the text. So God, help us. We love you. Thank you for saving us. And ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. 